0: Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. For God so loved the world That he gave his only son Whosoever believes will not pay Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you Lord so much now for this time of worship that we've had and I pray that that would continue now as we open the great truths of your Word of God. I ask that you will give us ears to hear, Lord, hearts to understand and and wills to obey, Lord God, as we hear the great truths of your Word. May Jesus be glorified in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are looking at the greatest verse in the Bible this morning. Any guesses what verse I'm talking about? Shocker. Yeah, okay. If it's not the great obviously the greatest verse is a relative term, but it's certainly one of the most well known verses in the Bible. John three sixteen. Who can recite John three sixteen by memory in this hall? I'd hope everyone would be able to do that pretty much. Yeah. I know it's on the I know it's on the screen. It wasn't a test, it was just a it was just a question, yeah. Um But it's one verse, that's probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible. Um, So what I want to try and do this morning is, it's one of these verses where I think our over-familiarity with it has maybe led to a little bit of, uh, I'm going to say, not contempt, but we've become too comfortable with the truths it teaches. We hear it so often that we don't often spend time to think about it. So I I want to try and recapture a little bit of the grandeur of John 3.16 this morning. And yet I say try, Because this verse is a truly challenging verse, it's been fairly challenging studying it throughout the week and trying to figure out what what new I can say about it, what what there is to say about it. Obviously the topic is the love of God. And this is a topic that we all, you know, should awe us and humble us as we come to approach it. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, I think my own hesitation to preach from John 3.16 comes down to this. I appreciate it so profoundly that I am frightened by it. I am overwhelmed by John 3.16 to the point of inadequacy, almost despair. And along with this is my knowledge that if a minister is to try and preach from John 3.16, he must be endowed with great sympathy and a genuine love for God and man. So I approach it. I approach it as one who is filled with great fear and yet great fascination. I take off my shoes, my heart shoes at least, as I come to this declaration that God so loved the world." And I'd ask us that we all approach this text in that manner today. Now, of course, the Gospel of John has been famously said, I think it was theologian Leon Morris, the Gospel of John is a pool shallow enough for a child to paddle in and yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Many of you have probably heard of something similar. that expression or something similar to it comes from Leon Morris. So today I want to spend some time with you in the shallows, but we are going to... We' come out of the shadows and we're going to jump in the deep end for various parts of this study. So my hope is that there'll be something for everyone um, and when we finished we would have all experienced that experience of being washed by the water of the Word and that will edify us. John 3:16 has been called the Gospel in superlatives. Martin Luther called John 3:16 the Bible in miniature. Others have said that it is the Mount Everest of Holy Scripture, the most exquisite flower in the garden of Holy Scripture. Now, why do we find such statements about this verse? Why could it rightly be claimed as the greatest verse in the Bible? Well, there's an old Bible tract called The Greatest Gift, some of you have probably seen it, and it breaks down this verse like this, and I think this is a good way to show that it could be the greatest uh, verse in the Bible. It says, because for God, that's the greatest being, and so loved, the greatest degree, the world, that's the greatest number, that he gave, that's the greatest act, his only begotten son, that's the greatest gift, that whoever believes, that is the greatest invitation, in him, that is the greatest person, shall not perish, that is the greatest deliverance, but have, that is the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. Now when i when I first read that, I thought, well, that's a fitting place to end my sermon. I should have saved that to the end. But there's much more that we can get from this verse. Now, it's the greatest verse in many ways, but it's also one of the most popular verses. We see John three sixteen showing up in the culture in many, many different ways. Let me take you back three three and a half thousand years to the Egyptian city of Heliolipus. or oh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Heliopolis, Heliopolis it's the sun god, it's the Greek word for the sun. This was a major religious centre for the Egyptians, known as the City of Pillars. They had the, the Temple of Amun-Ra there, that's the temple up there, and you can see those big, the big obelisk in front of it. There were originally three of those obelisks. We learn from Genesis 46, verse 20, it says this, And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him." Now On is the Hebrew name for the the same city. So we learn that Joseph married a a daughter of a priestess who probably would have been serving at, at that temple right there. So those pillars in front of it very probably would have been very well known to Joseph, to Manasseh and to Ephraim. So later in life it's very likely that Moses laid eyes on those pillars right there, guarding that temple. Much later in its history when Alexander the Great took over that area of the world. He stopped at this city. It was a famous city because they had uh, kind of libraries and centers of learning there. Um, During this Greek era, the city flourished as a seat of learning. Homer, Plato, Aristotle, all of the famous philosophers would have seen these pillars. They would have been well known to them. Around 1,400 years later, under Roman rule, two of these pillars were removed, and they were taken up north in Egypt to a city called Alexandria. One of them still stands there today. The Romans took the other two up to Alexandria. They stayed there, really, until the year 1819. So again, another sort of almost 2,000 years. And in 1819, they were gifted to the UK government by Egypt's ruler, Muhammad Ali. This was following Lord Nelson's victory in the Battle of the Nile, which was when Napoleon tried to invade Egypt, and the British intervened. And as a gift, we were given this piece of history. One of these obelisks now stands on the bank of the River Thames. You've probably seen it, you've probably walked past it and not really realized what it is. It's amazing history. This is something that Moses probably laid eyes on, that Manasseh and Ephraim probably laid eyes on, now sitting on the bank of the Thames. What's even more amazing is when this was put there in 1819, they decided they would put a time capsule in its base, which is still there to this day. So they formed a committee and they wanted to put the most important verse in the Bible in it. No guesses for where I'm going with this. They formed a committee. So there, underneath this obelisk that would have been seen by many of our Bible figures, there sits in 215 languages the text of John 3.16. I love that. I think that's just a, a signpost. We think of Moses. We know Jesus was you know, a prophet like unto Moses. They all pointed towards really what John 3.16 is talking about, and we have it right there on the side of the Thames in London. It shows up in many other ways. Forever 21, Christian-owned business, they put it on the bottom of all their clothing bags. I think it's fitting that the greatest verse is probably is shown at the home of possibly the greatest burgers in the world. In and out. If you've ever been to California, you need to go there. They have it on the bottom of all their cups, John 316, another Christian-owned business. Now, for many Americans, John 316 is forever associated with a man called Tim Tebow. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a, if, you, if you're into American football, you've probably heard of him. In 2009, he was a quarterback getting ready to play a national championship, and he decided to wear, as you can see, they, they often do that in, in American football. He put John 316 under his eyes, and he said this, Leading up to the game, I was really agonizing and contemplating what verse, and God kept bringing up to my heart and my head John 3.16, which is the essence of our Christianity. It's the essence of our hope. And after they won that game, it was discovered that 94 million people had Googled John 3.16. 94 million people. Now, if you you type John 3.16 into Google, it will actually show the entire verse just comes up immediately in the search function. So, it's a pretty good guess that everyone who Googled it probably read it, but it doesn't end there. Three years later, to the day, Tim Tebow was in another championship game, this time playing for the Broncos. After the game was finished, he went out to answer some questions from the press. He was stopped by a press agent who said to him, you know, it's exactly three years after you wore John 3.16 under your eyes. And he said, okay, yeah, that's cool. And the guy said, no, no, I don't think you realize what's happening. During this game you've just played, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per completion were 31.6. Your yards per rush were 3.16. And the ratings that night for TV were 31.6. And time of possession was 31.06. And during that game, another 91 million people googled John 316. And it's the number one trending thing on every social media platform. I'd say that Tim Tebow probably was, was more responsible for anyone else, more people reading that verse than anyone else in history, simply because of that. And I love that. All he did was put it under his eyes. You see, God can do very great things with very small steps of faith when we're willing to show that we stand for him. Now, I'm sharing these stories with you to really try and highlight the uniqueness of this verse that is before us. It is truly inexhaustible. I want us to maybe stir ourselves from our unhealthy familiarity with it. Let me give you one more illustration and then we'll get into this text. There was a young man called Henry Morehouse. He got saved in 1859. And soon after, he began to preach the gospel with passion. In 1867, he met uh, the famed evangelist D.L. Moody. And he, he uh, invited himself to Moody's church to come and preach. Obviously quite a confident young man. Uh, and Moody agreed, not really thinking he'd ever have to um, made good on that. It was in Ireland where they where they met, but a little while later, Morehouse did show up. Moody allowed him to preach. Moody had to actually leave and go away for other missions. Morehouse ended up preaching for seven nights to great crowds at Moody's church, and every single night he preached on John 3:16. And when Moody returned, he was still preaching from John 3:16. And Moody later recalled, he said he preached a most extraordinary sermon from that verse. I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out and I could not keep back the tears. It was like news from a far country. I drank it in. Steele Moody's words. It had a life-changing effect on Moody. He said, I'd never forgotten those nights. I have preached a different gospel since. I have had more power with God and man since then. And later when this young man, Morehouse, fell ill, he was on his deathbed and he looked up to his friends And he said, if it were the Lord's will to raise me again, I should like to preach from the text, God so loved the world. This verse has just had such a huge impact in our world that it really can be called the greatest verse. Let's turn to John 3.16 in our Bibles, if you haven't already, please. Or John chapter 3. We do need to provide a bit of context for this verse. It comes in a conversation, again, a very famous conversation about being born again. We've heard that term. Now, we might assume that that term is an evangelical term. Most people know the the phrase being born again from someone like Billy Graham, from someone like Chuck Colson, who wrote his famous book, You You Must Be Born Again, or there's a couple of books like that, from famous Christian evangelists. Um, And that's how we know the term. I remember being at work one time and telling someone I was a Christian. And they, someone next, near me said, oh, a so, born-again Christian. And, and how you do, you know, I got excited and thought, oh, yes, maybe there's a Christian here. And I said, are you a Christian? And she said, oh, no, no, no. And I said, oh, how, how do you know that term? And she said, oh, from Billy Graham and Cliff Richard. And I was like, okay. <laughs> not as good, but that's how popular this term is known. However, the term born-again is not an evangelical Christian term in its primary sense. The term born-again is a Jewish term. And we're going to look at this now, we have to understand what we look, what we see in John chapter 3 is probably the most Jewish conversation you could ever listen into okay? it's a conversation between Rabbi Yeshua the Messiah of Israel and Nicodemus a Rabbi, a member of the Sanhedrin and the head of a rabbinical academy in Israel it takes place in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover really couldn't get more Jewish than that so we need to understand it in that context if we're going to go forward. So I'm going to read to you the first uh, this this chapter now, and make a few comments as we go before we build up to John 3:16. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man in the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now the fact that a that a that a man like Nicodemus is calling Jesus a man a teacher from God is quite a statement because a rabbi would never have said that about someone who hadn't been trained in their own rabbinical academy jesus was was an untrained rabbi in that sense, but he obviously recognized that his miracles remember this is just after the miracle at Cana turning the water to wine his miracles were powerful, and this man recognized it but no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it is going, where it comes from rather, and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. And we get this sort of uh, conversation where it appears that Nicodemus is quite confused. Now, I want to say that I've heard some, a lot of commentaries they're rather hard on Nicodemus here, they assume that he's really kind of like a bit of a bumbling, blind idiot when he's saying, well, can I be, you know, that statement, can I go back into my mother's womb, seems like a bit of a weird thing to say. You have to understand the context. For a Pharisee, for, you know, First Temple, Jude- Second Temple Judaism at this time, the term born again, or rebirth as it's often called, was a very, very familiar term. <clears throat> the Jewish people believed there were eight different ways that you could be born again. One was when a proselyte or a non-Jew converted to Judaism, and one was when a Jewish person was crowned king. Now those two things don't apply to Nicodemus, so he doesn't qualify for them. The other ones were baptism, repentance, bar mitzvah, that's a coming of age for a Jewish man, a marriage, a rabbinic ordination, or when you're made to be the, the, the head of a rabbinic academy. All of those things were considered to be a new birth in the Jewish mindset. So Nicodemus' question is not a complete misunderstanding, he's understanding in one sense quite well, he does misunderstand, but what he's basically saying is, I, you know, I'm past 50 at this point, I'm the head of a rabbinical academy, I've done all the being born again that I can do, Jesus. You know, are you, are you saying I, the only way I could do more would be to, you know, go back and start all over again? What are you saying? I've, I've done it all at this point. You see, that's his misunderstanding and in the context it's sli- slightly different. But Jesus is trying to show him something more. Jesus is, in effect, saying there is still one more way that you can be born again and it is that way that is the one that's going to get you into the kingdom. And he is talking about, obviously, spiritual rebirth, which was a slightly different concept. Jesus is making the point that it's not physical birth that gets you into the kingdom. Now, again, that might seem obvious, but understand the background that Nicodemus was working from. The Pharisaic teaching at the time This comes from the Talmud, Sanhedrin 90, was that all Israelites have a share in the world to come. You see, being born a Jew would automatically provide you entrance into the kingdom. Uh, Rabbinic commentary on Genesis, Genesis Rebath, chapter 48, actually teaches that Abraham sits at the gates of Gehenna to save any Israelite who might have been assigned there by accident. This is the sort of way that the Jewish people thought about that. If a Jew was on his way to hell, basically. Abraham was there as their guard to say, no, no, you're Abrahamic, you know, your Abrahamic lineage, you need to go to the, to the kingdom. That, that was the teaching and understanding at the time. So when Jesus is, you know, it's a very, very big cultural point for him to emphasize, it's not because of your Abrahamic lineages. It's not just by birth you're getting this. You need a spiritual rebirth. That's why Jesus is pushing back so strongly on this. And we see Nicodemus, verse nine, he says, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? And that word, the teacher, there, it should be capitalized. Uh, It's a very specific Jewish term that refers to someone who is the head of a rabbinical academy, one of the leaders. You don't just teach the people. This was a man who was teaching the teachers, if you see what I mean. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. The we there that Jesus is speaking of in the plural Obviously, I believe he's speaking of one being the Torah, Moses and the prophets, and the second one being him. He's basically saying that you know, all of the Bible is pointing towards this time that I'm speaking about, entrance into the kingdom. He says, how can you be a teacher of Israel and not know these things? No one has, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, he goes on now to identify himself as the divine Messiah, not as one who went up to heaven, but one that came down from heaven. And he uses that specific term, the Son of Man, to do it. Now, you may recognize that term from the book of Daniel, In in Daniel chapter 7, there's a vision that speaks of the Son of Man, and it clearly speaks of him being divine. Again, just notice the Jewishness of this conversation. He's making reference to to coming down from heaven. He's making reference to the book of Daniel here. He's making reference to the Jewish concept of being born again. And now he's about to give this, this teacher of Israel an Old Testament Bible study. And he references this event in Numbers 21. You may remember it children of Israel, are in the wilderness. They, they're being disobedient to God and he sends poisonous serpents into their midst and they start being bitten and they are dying. <coughs> Excuse me. And the only way that they can survive is he tells Moses to take a serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up, and then everyone who looks in faith to, to that pole will be saved from physical death. The poison will not affect them. <coughs> Jesus now makes this a typology, that is a picture of himself. And he says, just as Moses held up that serpent, soon I am going to be raised up on a cross. And everyone who looks to me in faith will also be saved. But this time it will not be from physical death, it will also be from spiritual death. <coughs> Sorry, I took a frog in my right there. What happened physically to Israel will happen spiritually with the Messiah. Those to, who look to him will be healed from spiritual death and be born again. And this concept of looking, it's more than just turning your head, it's looking with trust and faith at the one who says it. We have it in Hebrews 12, 3, you know, look, look to me and be saved. We're going to look at a verse now, and I'm the author and finisher of your faith. And all these verses that use this little term, look to me, it's talking about a looking in faith. He's basically saying that you cannot hide behind good deeds, you cannot hide behind obedience to Torah, you cannot hide behind your Abrahamic lineage. Nothing will do. Everyone is responsible for their own confession of faith, their own repentance from sin, and their own looking to Jesus. Individual responsibility, which is again another Old Testament concept. In 1850, a 15-year-old boy was on his way to church. He was unable to get to his usual church because there was uh, such a heavy snowstorm. He ducked into a nearer Methodist church. He recounts the events as follows. I turned into the chapel and there was about 15 people or so, no minister. A layperson took to the pulpit to preach, and he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. That's Isaiah 45, verse 22. He continues, Hey, said he in broad Essex, Many of ye are looking to yourselves, there's no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. He then looked under the gallery and saw me as a stranger. He pointed at me and said, young man, you look very miserable. He continued, you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted, as only a Methodist can, Young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. That young man there and then did look to faith. And that was how the great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, got saved. And Charles Spurgeon would go on to preach one of the most amazing sermons on John 3.16 ever delivered, called Immeasurable Love. Hmm. In the beginning of that sermon, Spurgeon says this, this text might be put in the forefront of all my volumes of discourses as the sole topic of my life's ministry. And Spurgeon wrote a lot. It has been my one and only business to set forth the love of God to men in Christ Jesus. My heart's desire has been to sound forth, as with a trumpet, the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So let's look at verse 16 more closely. For God begins with these two words, very similar to Genesis, begins in the beginning, God. You'll notice that when the Ten Commandments are being given to, it begins God. It's really the fundamental declaration of reality as we know it. Everything in the world really comes down to this issue, God or no God. Much of the conflicts we see in our world, much of the political division that we see in our world, much of the so-called culture wars, really come back down to this issue at some point, God or no God, God's opinion or man's opinion. Many of the issues we see in the church today come down to this issue. Not so much whether he exists, but who is he and how has he revealed himself to be. Many people like to make a God in their own image. Many people excuse behavior because they think that they know God better and that he doesn't care about certain things. All of these things come back to this issue. A.W. Tozer said it like this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He continued, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshipper entertains high or low thoughts about God. And this is true. What you think will affect what you do. How you think about God will behave how you respond to God whether you see God as some ogre in the sky trying to limit your fun, that will produce hardness in your heart and you will rebel against that. If you understand God as a loving father, you will respond in love, in obedience, because you love your father. These are the issues. This is what Tozer had so well in many of his books. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11, Moses warns, warns the Israelites, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Because when you forget the Lord your God, bad things follow. We've seen this in our history many, many times in this world. We saw this in all those communist regimes that were founded on atheism that killed more people than all religions put together in in the last century alone. This is what happens when man forgets God. The Bible constantly tells Israel, do not forget God. And yet we have here this great declaration of the plan of salvation and it starts with that reminder, for God. You see, it is God that is the source of everything that follows. This plan is totally his from start to finish. It is God, eternal, self-existing, and immutable. It is God, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. It is God, holy, righteous, and just. It is God, merciful, gracious, and forgiving. It is God, our loving Father. And this Father so loved the world. You see, what an amazing, all-encompassing statement this is. This is love to the highest degree. This is love that's traced to its source for us, and the source is God. Remember the verse in 1 John 4, Chapter 8, where it says, God is love. This is the fundamental assertion of the Bible. This is one of the main things we need to know and understand about God. God is love. Minister R.A. Torrey, one of Moody's associates, he called that little statement the keynote of the entire Bible. He said it was one of the most shortest but most profound statements ever written. He went on to say that if anyone asked him to put the Bible into one sentence, it would be this, God is love. You see, from start to finish, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the Bible is one great, ever-swelling anthem, and that anthem resounds with the sound that God is love. It was God's love that led to the call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be their blessing, to be their blessing for their descendants, for the whole human race. It was God's love that led to the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, And it was God's love that led to the giving of the law on Sinai. It was God's love that led to um, his son coming down in a manger. It was God's love that led his son to die for sinful men, to be buried and to raise again the third day, and to ascend back up into heaven at the right hand of the Father in glory. And it will be God's love that will send him back to earth when the fullness of time has come for that most greatest of events that the world will ever see when his feet touch the ground in the Mount of Olives. Heaven and hell and all all his glories, Hell and all its horrors both have their origin in the love of God. It really is truly the center of the entire Bible. He so loved the world. We're also told the object of this divine love, and it is the world. The Greek word here really refers to, can often refer to the realm where humans live, and it can also more often refer to the people who live in that realm. Greek scholar A.T. Robinson says that in this particular text it means the whole human race. Now, the fact that God loves the world in that broad sense might seem very obvious to many Christians, to a lot of us sitting here. We might think that this is surely this has been you know the thrust of our preaching and our gospel forever since. But this is actually quite a contested topic in theology. Now I said that we were going to jump into the deep end a little bit. We're going to do that now. This is the theologian in me wanting to get into this. I'm going to need you all to follow with me very closely to understand what we're going through here. That's just a little wake-up call for you, see a few of you heavy eyes. There's a a theological system that we refer to as reformed theology. I've had questions from some of you about this, or Calvinism. And they would take issue with what I've just said about John 3.16. Let me give you an example. That's often the easiest way to illustrate this. There's a scholar called A.W. Pink, in many ways a very great scholar, written some great Bible commentaries, but he's very, very Calvinist. And he says this, when we say that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, we mean that he loves whom he chooses. God does not love everyone. <clears throat> God does not love everyone. Now, if you heard a minister from the pulpit say it quite so bluntly like that, you might be a little taken back. You might, under, you might sort of, you know, surely that's pulling the rug out from under us about everything we've understood about God. And verses like John 3.16 Now, in fairness to many Calvinists, they don't say it quite as openly and uh, bluntly as A.W. Pink does. Instead, they will try to say that they affirm God's universal love, but in reality, uh, I believe, they end up playing with language. and I'm going to demonstrate that for you. I believe that Calvinist theology does have a slight blind spot when it comes to the love of God. And I'm going into this because Calvinist theology is very, very popular these days. It's influential, it's growing in resurgent, particularly among young people. Um, I've had questions from it about you, and it's an issue that we're beginning to see. If you Google any of these topics, the first whole page of resources are all Calvinist resources. They're very good and very slick at getting their message out. And I'm not against Calvinists. You know, I have I have Charles Spurgeon on the back of my phone. I, I You know, I have busts of Calvinist preachers and things in my office. Uh, one of my prized possess- possessions is a 1606 Geneva Bible with the Reformers' Notes. Uh, there are many, many good... Uh, teachings and stuff that have come from this tradition. They are our brothers, and let's make no mistake about that. I differ with them on their understanding that I'm gonna demonstrate for you. The Westminster Catechism, which is a, you know, classic Calvinist statement of faith, it asks this question, what is God? It answers, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, in wisdom, in power, in holiness, in justice, in goodness, and truth. Now, God is all those things. But there is one glaring omission from that statement about what is God. And it is 1 John 4 verse 8. God is love. Or consider the famous works by John Calvin. Some of you may be familiar with the Institutes of the Christian Religion, this monumental landmark of theology that John Calvin wrote over 1,500 pages. (coughs) Sorry, excuse me. It's basically Calvin's systematic theology. He writes about the attributes of God and many wonderful things in that book, but the remarkable thing is, not once in that entire work does he reference 1 John 4 verse 8. Not once in that entire work does he say that God is love from the Bible like that. Now, this is a problem. I believe this this is illustra- illustrative of a blind spot in Calvinist theology. Now, like I said, many Calvinists would say I'm misrepresenting them here. It, it's hard to not misrepresent. You know, they're not a monolithic group. Everything I say is going to offend someone. There's a big, broad spectrum of belief under that banner, so I'm going to show you now what I mean. Many of them will say, oh no, no, we do affirm that God loves everyone. But when you get into what they really mean, you'll see that they change the meaning of a few words. There's a scholar today called D.A. Carson, he's still alive today, brilliant New Testament scholar. He's a Calvinist and he wrote the book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Now the title alone tells you something. The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And he 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 said this, when I have preached or lectured in Calvinist circles, I have often been asked, do you feel free to tell unbelievers that God loves them? He doesn't get this question occasionally. He says he gets this question often when he's preaching to his own, in that sense. Young ministers coming up to him and asking, do you feel free to tell unbelievers that God loves them? Now this is, this is what I want us to understand. Why is he getting that question? To understand this, we need to know a little bit more about a couple of things that they believe. They they hold to a doctrine called unconditional election. Okay, Let me explain this to you now. Obviously, I believe in election. I just understand it differently. Unconditional election to the Calvinists means this. Only those God chose will be given the irresistible, regenerating grace that will result in them believing the gospel. The Westminster Confession puts it like this. By the decree of God... For the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. Some predestined to everlasting life, some preordained to everlasting death. Those who are not elected are left in their fallen condition. They are dead in trespasses and sins. They have no hope of anything except eternal damnation. Elsewhere it says that God is pleased to withhold his mercy and ordain them to dishonor for their sin, That's again from the Westminster Confession. And all this is done for the purpose of showing that God has glory and sovereignty and power over his creatures. Calvinism emphasizes the sovereignty of God above all else. They also believe, and these sort of things flow naturally, in a doctrine called limited atonement. And what this believes is that because obviously God is only elected to save some, others will be elected to go to eternal damnation, that Christ's death on the cross was only for the elect. When Christ died on the cross, he was only paying the, the sacrifice for the sins of the elect. And therefore, obviously, the natural conclusion for that is that God then does not love the non-elect because he did not make a way possible for them to be saved because he didn't elect them and he didn't die for them. It's a natural conclusion. You see, so when a Calvinist comes across a verse like John 3.16 that says, but God so loved the world... They have to restrict the meaning of that, that, world, that word, world. And they will say something like, oh, it, it, it means the world of the elect. Or when they come across a verse that says, God desires all people to be saved, they'll say things like, well, that, that doesn't mean all people without, ex, you know, without exception, it means all types of people. You know, rich, poor, you know, slave, free, that, that's all it means. It's, it's not all people without exception, it's all people with distinction. And there's all these sorts of arguments that they go through. But this is why D. A. Carson keeps getting this question, because when you believe those things that Calvinists believe, it becomes a natural question that they would ask: Can we then tell unbelievers that God loves them? Because I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure if we can actually say that. And, it, and logically, it, it's true. They shouldn't be confident in saying that. And this is why people like A. W. Pink, many people call him a hyper-Calvinist. I believe he was just a logical Calvinist, and he just said it bluntly, like it is. Most people today don't say it quite like that. Let me show you how D.A. Carson answered it. He, he would be considered a moderate Calvinist. <clears throat> he says, yes, of course I tell the unconverted that God loves them. Now you might, if you followed what I've just said, you might think, well, how, how can he say that? You know, if, if he's actually never given most of humanity any hope of ever being in heaven, how can he truly say that he loves them? And that's a good question. The reason he says this is because he knows there are too many verses to the contrary. When he says that, he actually says, we can't simply say that God doesn't love everyone. There are too many verses. And he's referring to things like John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 John 2.2, He is the propitiation for our sins, speaking of believers, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a pretty clear verse there, because he separates world from believers. So the world is clearly referring to the unbelieving world there. 1 John 4:4. 4, 4, we testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 Timothy 2:4. Who desires all people to be saved, all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I could give you way more. Of this. These texts go on and on. And because of the the amount of these texts, um, Carson even admits that to try and restrict all of these is really textual gymnastics. So you're better just to say that you know God does affirm the love. But then they're sort of trapped in this contradiction. Let me show you how he gets out of this. And this is what I want you to understand. Because if you're not if you don't know what they're talking about, it's very, very misleading. The way he gets around this by saying that God does love everyone is he fragments the love of God into three different types. He says God's providential love over all creation. This is referring to the fact that God gives the sun and water and food and common grace to everyone. He then says the second type of God's love is God's salvific stance towards the fallen world. This is a, a funny one. This is basically he invites everyone to repent and believe. And then the third love is God's particular effective selecting love towards the elect, which means they're going to be saved. Now how can he tell the, the unconverted that God loves them? Because when he says that, he means it only the first two types, not the third type. He can say God loves them. Now, what's tricky about this is that no one is really referring to the first two types when we say that. You know, that doesn't really mean, mean anything. It, it's it's nonsense. So unless God loves them in the third type, they're not going to be able to get saved anyway. So saying that God invites them all to repent when they're not able to repent is it's just a hollow gesture. It's, it's a nonsense, quite frankly. But this is what they teach, and that's how he gets around that. Now. <laughs> Much more could could be said on that. Calvinists would take huge issue with that, but but that's just a little introduction to the problem. The truth is, God is love. It is absolutely central to the Christian faith, and this love is revealed in the act of his giving his son, and this was for the entire world, without exception or distinction. C.S. Lewis said it like this, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God of love God is love, have no real meaning unless God contains at least two people. Think on this. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was, he was not love. That's why why the love of God is such a central doctrine, because it speaks to the Trinitarian nature of our God. You see, this is why it's more essential to his being than sovereignty, like the Calvinists like to make it. Because think about it. Before there was ever a world or a creation for God to exercise sovereignty over as king, God was love. Completely satisfied between the members of the Trinity loving one another. It's foundational to the Christian faith. Love between the three persons of the Trinity. And we learn from this verse that this love led him to give his only begotten son. This is the greatest gift ever imaginable, his son Jesus. Now parents, we can think about how hard it would be to give up a child. How hard it would be to give up a child in the sense for for people we love and people who love us, let alone for people that hate us. You notice the term begotten son there in John 3.16. Some of your translations may not have it, but begotten son is what 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 it reads. There is a link there back to the story of Abraham. Remember when Abraham had to sacrifice Isaac and he called him his only begotten son there's a link there because again Genesis chapter 22, that's a huge passage in Jewish theology and it again, he's making a picture here and an allusion to the same event because one thing you learn about, Isaac was not being dragged up the hill by Abraham, he was a young man at this time and he was a willing, he went willingly, submitting to the will of his father to be sacrificed and this is a picture of Christ Christ was equal in this decision. many atheists today you hear them say that and many Christians now, unfortunately, that God giving his son, you know, that's like child abuse, giving your son over to be, to be killed on a cross for, for these people. Cosmic child abuse, that's a claim for many people. That's not an accurate picture of what was going on. You know, people like Dawkins, they make these claims, but they don't understand the theology. Christ was willing to lay down his life for us, because the love that the Father had for him was the same love that he had, because I and the Father are one. You see how deep this theology is. All of God's plan centers around his Son. There is no plan or program or purpose in the universe in time or eternity that does not center around his Son. Any thinking that is not Christ-centered in our lives is out of harmony with God's mind. Our plans will only succeed in the proportion as to whether or not they are centered around God's Son. And then he goes on to say that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever, anyone, everyone. Notice the universal application of this verse again. And then he says perish And here we have these two destinations, perish or eternal life. To perish is to be forever separated from the love of God. A life that has spurned God's gracious invitation and turned away from God's love will forever be confirmed in that state, under judgment for their sins, separated from the glory of God's kingdom in everlasting punishment. That is the truth and reality of this. This is why God's love is so crucial. And what a tragedy it is that so many people choose to live that way. And what a tragedy it is that so many people, hearts become cold and turn away from God's love. And you get on the path, and the path is the destination talked about. You will perish. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Another use of that all there, to come to repentance. This is why the message of John 3.16 in the Gospel is to be preached to all creation in the Gospel of Mark. It says eternal life. Notice that John 3.16 both starts and ends in eternity. It begins with a God who has no beginning and it ends with a life that has no ending. It begins with a God that has no beginning and it ends with a life that has no ending. And it's not just speaking of dying and going to some spiritual sort of fairy place called heaven. In the context, it's about being part of God's kingdom, which is eternal, but it has both present and future manifestations. You see, this is a life that will outlive our present bodies. It's a life that will continue when we're raised again to stand before Christ. It's a life that will outlive even the sun, the moon, and the stars. Spurgeon said in his amazing sermon on John 3.16, As long as there is a God, the believer shall not only exist but live. As long as there is a heaven, you shall enjoy it. As long as there is a Christ, you shall live in his holy love. And as long as there is an eternity, you shall continue to fill it with the light. You see, such a life... Motivated by such a love as we see in this text is what has motivated many people to go out onto the mission field to give their own lives for Christ. It's what motivates us to serve Christ, to be faithful to him in our day-by-day lives. 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's the love of Christ that compels us that we no longer live for ourselves and we live for him. 1 John 4, where it says we love him because he first loved us. It's the motivating factor in our lives—the love of God. I'm going to just share with you one illustration, and then we'll close. That illustrates this. Many of you may have heard of the famous uh, explorer, missionary explorer, called David Livingstone. He was an Af— he was a, a Scottish man, I believe, and he he went to uh, Africa his whole life exploring. He spent most of his life living in small huts and villages in unreached parts of Africa. He's the man who discovered Victoria Falls and named it after Queen Victoria, Victoria Falls. It's said that in the last days of his life, his skin was hard like leather under the African sun. He was blind in one eye from an earlier accident. He was uh, lame in one arm where he saved a vill- he was mauled by a lion. He was so sick that he couldn't walk. And his companions, who had such respect for him, they would carry him around in a hammock as he was still telling them to press on into the jungles of Africa um, to new, unreached places. And eventually he became so weak, they made him a hut and put him down, and as they lay him on his bed, he said to them, No, no, put me on my knees, put me on my knees. And they put him on his knees beside his bed and he knelt and began to pray like has been his habit for his whole life. And they obviously gave him privacy and they left him. And then in the morning when it was time to go, he did not arise. They, they waited and they waited, and then they went into his hut to see, if he was, um, see what was going on. And they saw he was still by his bed, on his knees, praying. Except they noticed that he was different. And they went over to him, and they saw that he had died in that position. And I find this fascinating. You see, he died exactly as he lived, on his knees, in communion with his God. His heart was for reaching the people of Africa, and that's how he died. Now his body was sent back to England, you can go to Westminster Abbey and see his, his tombstone in the ground. But the Africans removed his heart before they sent it back. Don't, don't, don't say, you know, doesn't sounds a bit weird to us, but this is what they did. They removed his heart and they buried it under one of his favourite trees over there. You see, they wanted Africa to have his heart because that's the truth of the situation. Africa did have his heart. But the point is, Africa had his heart because God had his heart. You see, because God had called him to Africa. And this is the question that I I leave with us today. Where is your heart? Is it in the will of God? Is it where God called you? I know some of you here have probably got weary hearts. Your hearts are tired. Your, Your hearts are hardened. The deceitfulness of sin has got its tentacles onto your heart and it pulls you away from God. We know that feeling. We've been there, many of us, at this time. If that is you, you need the love of God to be poured out into your heart afresh, Quite simply, you need to turn from that life. Because we've seen there is only one destination where that road leads. As a heart grows cold, it leads to the the broad road to destruction rather than the narrow road to life. Maybe some of you still have a heart of stone. You've never experienced that new birth, that born-again experience. God says to you that he'll take out that heart of stone and he'll give you a heart of flesh. And you will live and your destination will be forever with God in the glories of paradise. This is what this text is telling us. This is why this text has had probably more impact than, than any other. Only when we get to glory will we see how many people are there because of this text. And it would really be amiss for me not to offer you a chance to be born again, preaching on a text. I believe this text simply demands it. So I'll do that as we close in prayer. I just want to give us a moment in prayer too to examine our own hearts and discover where they are. So let's all close, bow our hearts now. We pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for these truths. Thank you for the truth of Scripture, Lord, that you are a great God. Lord, I thank you that you sent your Son. I thank you, Lord, that he died for us, that you loved us so much, even that while we were yet sinners, Lord, you still died for us, that you demonstrated your love for us on that cross. And Lord, that through believing, through looking at you, that we can be born again. And Lord, I pray for any here now who have not experienced that new birth, that they would look to you in faith as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who died and paid the penalty for their sins, and that they would receive you in faith, Lord God. And just as Spurgeon sat in that hall that day, that his heart would be warmed and he would be born afresh. Lord, I pray that for anyone here now who does not know you. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, whose hearts have grown cold, I ask that you would come close to us and warm, Lord, with the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Holy Spirit and that we would be drawn back to you. That you have grace to forgive anything that we've done in our lives, Lord God. And Lord, I pray that you would put the seriousness of this in our hearts, that we would understand this is what life is all about, God or no God. We thank you, Jesus, for this. We commit it now in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.